Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, September 30th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We will feature dispatches on the attempt to divert another government shutdown in Washington, D.C. The Republic of Congo Brazzaville is participating in a forum on the China-led Belt and Road Initiative. Ethiopia is working to reach the full capacity of its Grand Renaissance Dam Project. And uh, we look at the August coup in Gabon and its implications for the Central African region. In the second and third hours, we continue our review of the United Nations General Assembly 78th session. In this episode, we will listen uh, to the addresses from leaders from Zimbabwe, Iran, the state of Palestine, China, Ethiopia, and Cuba. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, Papa Wimba and the Viva La Musica Orchestra. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Bonsoir chers amis, la première chanson que, que je vais interpréter tout à l'heure s'intitule « L'esclave ». Là, je remonte un tout petit peu, quatre siècles avant, 400 ans avant, pour vous retracer l'histoire de l'homme noir. Je vous disais que ça fait 400 ans. Et jusqu'à nos jours, l'homme noir continue toujours à être l'objet de souffrance. En passant dans ma chanson, l'esclave bien sûr, je cite le nom de quelques grands leaders noirs, dont en l'occurrence Martin Luther King, que nous connaissons tous. que fut une grande chanteuse noire américaine à cause de sa maladie, l'homme blanc n'a pas pu, n'a pas voulu interner cette dame dans un hôpital où l'homme blanc dirigeait. Et Bob Marley qui a lutté aussi à travers sa chanson, à travers sa guitare, lutter, 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 lutter. Et à un certain Nelson Mandela, qui 23 ans durant ce monsieur est toujours en tol. C'est pas possible. Au seuil du 21e siècle, ces choses ne peuvent plus se passer comme ça là. Bien sûr parce que nous n'avons qu'un seul créateur. Que tu sois jaune, que tu sois rouge, que tu sois blanc, que tu sois noir, nous n'avons que la même couleur du sang pour la sauvegarde de l'humanité. Unissons-nous. Unissons-nous pour la sauvegarde de l'humanité. Ce n'est pas possible.
Vous allez peut-être tous croire que Papa Wemba commence à chanter de la politique. Je ne chanterai jamais de la politique car je hais la politique. C'est la politique qui est en train de diviser ces mondes de Dieu. Je ne chante que la vérité.
salir la salir de nouveauté. L'hôpital de la palatium. Mina Samba Kombawa. Bonitua, bonitua, bonitua. Hai, hai, arigato. Vous comprenez le thème. Nous parlons japonais, vous ne faites pas. Hai, dansez d'accueil, dansez d'accueil. Je sais d'accueil. Dansez d'accueil. Vous avez fait ça. Rien d'accord. Arigato. Arigato. Ah, merci beaucoup. Ça, c'est bien. Minasama Kombawa, japonaise. Bon. Donc, en direct de Yoshi, Bambo te fait ça, Mingabo. Kamikaze. Ok, tu voyais bien Bali Amdando va se faire là. Si mon Awa, tu vois ça, on a Fobu. Merci. Le long de l'Eimoto, Mboka Isalimatanga. Et le Gikoloba, Danger Zali. Thank you. 
Il nous reste une chanson et selon votre programme, vous aviez prévu Analengo. On ne va pas se séparer comme ça, il y a longtemps que vous avez quitté, sept mois à peu près, mais ce soir évidemment on ne parlera pas de votre tournée. J'aimerais simplement avoir votre avis sur ce concours puisque vous avez quand même voulu, vous avez bien accepté de l'animer. Vous êtes un quinois, 
Vous êtes un des grands musiciens, un grand sapeur de Kinshasa. Alors, euh, quelle est votre opinion sur ce concours euh, Kinshasa à la ville Ce que, que ce soit en France ou ailleurs, on ne cesse de parler de ma ville, ma ville qui est Kinshasa. Kinshasa, c'est une ville qui est très chaude, Kinshasa où les gens circulent 24 sur 24 et je remercie beaucoup les organisateurs de ce concours. Il faut que de temps en temps ce genre de trucs euh, reviennent. Vraiment j'en suis beaucoup fier et je suis très flatté euh, pour mon invitation puisque pour moi ce soir ce n'est pas une grande télé. Euh, bon, parce que je suis ami à, à François Bélanger et il m'a prié, coûte que coûte, papa fais-moi plaisir de passer à la télé. Je lui ai donné mon accord et me voici. Et pour les le téléspectateurs aussi. Et voilà, on va terminer avec euh, Anna Lengo.
September 30th, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the current crisis of governance in the United States. The House uh, passed a bill of 335 to 91 earlier today uh, to fund the government for 45 days, hours before government shutdown was to go into effect. The bill House Speaker Kevin McCarthy put to a vote, ultimately won uh, support uh, from more uh, Democrats than Republicans. Uh, Ninety Republicans voted no, and just a single Democrat voted against the short-term funding measure. McCarthy uh, was forced to rely on Democrats for passage because the Speaker's hard right flank said it would oppose any short-term measure. The Speaker set up a process for voting requiring a two-thirds supermajority, about 290 votes in the 435-member House uh, for passage. Republicans hold a 221 to 212 majority with two vacancies. The bill uh, will now go to the Senate for a vote, and uh, that will be done um, sometimes in the next couple of hours. So if you want to stay involved and up-to-date on the uh, developments uh, in the United States government, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, 
China's invitation uh, for the Republic of Congo Brazzaville to the third Belt and Road Forum for international cooperation shows the, quote, excellence, unquote, of Congo-China relations. Congolese Minister of International Cooperation and the Promotion of Public-Private Partnership, Dao Sasu Nguesu, said on Friday evening. He made the, the remarks at the reception held in the capital of Brazzaville, celebrating the 74th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. This invitation shows the excellence of the relations between the two countries, he said, expressing his high expectations uh, for this event scheduled uh, for October. Noting uh, the upcoming 60th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between the two countries in 2024, the Congolese minister said the the Congo-China Comprehensive Strategic and Cooperative Partnership has enabled the realization of numerous projects beneficial to the country's development. You are listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, a decade ago, Ethiopia embarked on the construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, GERD, on the Abe River uh, with the ambitious goal of bringing its citizens out of energy poverty. However, the downstream countries did not initially view the dam's construction in the same positive light as Ethiopia had intended, which led to a series of negotiations between Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan under the auspices of the African Union. The GERD negotiations, uh, tripartite talks facilitated by the African Union, aimed to address the critical issues surrounding the filling and annual operation of the GERD. The African Union's pivotal role includes uh, providing a neutral platform for the three countries to engage in constructive dialogue. Ethiopia uh, strongly believes that the tripartite talks are essential in fostering cooperation and understanding among the three countries. One notable aspect of the AU process is the support received uh, from mutual friends of Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt. Nonetheless, the negotiation process encountered its share of challenges along the way, resulting in a protracted stalemate despite Ethiopia's steadfast dedication to the guiding principle of African solutions to African problems. Finally, uh, in uh, this uh, segment of our program, Recent developments in Gabon, they have found itself thrust into the international spotlight as a coup unfolded, resulting in the ousting of President Ali Bongo by a military junta on August the 30th. The coup's unfolding events took many by surprise and raised concerns about the stability, not only within Gabon, but also its potential ramifications on the broader Central African region. Bongo's family uh, was in power in Gabon, For the last 56 years, and this coup ended the power of the five decades-long Bongo family regime. Ali Bongo, who had been in power since 2009 in the country, faced significant opposition during his rule uh, due to allegations of electoral fraud and concerns over uh, the 2018 situation and also uh, the physical ailments of uh, Ali Bongo, who had, had a stroke in 2018, five years ago. The coup that ousted him from power ended his 14 years of power in Gabon, carried out by the military junta, and it marks a pivotal moment uh, in Gabon's political landscape. This uh, change of government uh, in August, according to which Ali Bongo Adimba uh, had won the election. A few days later, remarkably, former President Ali Bongo is free to leave the country and travel abroad as per the leader, military junta, General Bryce 
Aligui Nguema said on the state television of Gabon, this indicating a somewhat peaceful transition of power, albeit under military pressure. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source uh, on uh, on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, September 30th, uh, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
by the music of Candy Staten with a track entitled Sweet Feeling, and that uh, song is going to be covered uh, by none other than Liz Wright. Uh, that track is supposed to be reissued uh, by Liz Wright uh, in the next few weeks. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, September 30th, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to move back into the statements that are delivered at the recently held United Nations General Assembly 78th session in New York City. We're going to hear from the President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, uh, President Emerson Mnangagwa. Uh, he'll be speaking uh, uh, in his capacity as Head of State in the Republic of Zimbabwe. The Assembly, the General Assembly, will now hear an address by His Excellency Emerson Dambuzo Managua, President of the Republic of Zimbabwe. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Emerson Dambuzo Nangawa, President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, and to invite him to address the Assembly. Your Excellency, Mr. Dennis Francis, President of the 78th Session of the United Nations General Assembly. Your Excellency, Mr. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations. Your Majesties, Excellencies, Heads of State and Government, Distinguished Delegates, I wish to congratulate you, Mr. President, on your election as the President of the 78th Session of the United Nations General Assembly. We are confident that under your stewardship, we will make progress on the important global agenda before us. Please be assured of Zimbabwe's support throughout your tenure. I also pay special tribute to your predecessor, Mr. Korosi, for leading the 77th session of the General Assembly. We value the role he played to promote science in our overarching goal to improve the lives and livelihoods of all. Mr. President, it is imperative that we recommit to the Charter of the United Nations, multilateralism, solidarity, justice, and the peaceful settlement of disputes for sustainable development and a shared future. This calls on us all to respect the sovereign equality of nations, big or small, poor or rich. By working together, we can harness our expertise and learn from one another to strengthen international institutions for the accelerated attainment of Agenda 2030. The impact of conflicts, terrorism, climate change induced natural disasters, biodiversity loss, and the rising prevalence of disease and pandemics, especially in the developing world, deserve our urgent attention. Regrettably, progress towards the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals has been uneven. 
while global solidarity has been tasted and the self-interest superseding cooperation, we have a duty to reignite our commitment to the principles of the 2030 Agenda and rekindle the spirit of multilateralism. To accelerate our action on the SDGs, we must scale up investments in people and communities by ensuring access to quality education, health care, clean water, and sanitation for all. The creation of economic opportunities, decent jobs, and entrepreneurship, especially among women and youth, must remain a priority. Excellencies, Zimbabwe continues to entrench democracy, constitutionalism, good governance, and the rule of law, following the recently held 2023 harmonized general elections. I am pleased to highlight that our country enjoyed peace before, during, and after our free, fair, transparent, and credible elections. Zimbabwe has been under the illegal unilateral economic sanctions for 23 years, imposed by some Western countries. These sanctions were designed to subjugate the sovereign will of the Zimbabwean people. We therefore demand that the unjustified unilateral sanctions be unconditionally lifted, including those imposed on countries like Cuba. We remain grateful for the support and solidarity of progressive countries in the Committee of Nations. In spite of these debilitating sanctions, the people of Zimbabwe have become masters of their destiny. This is incarnate on a philosophy that, as a people, we have the duty and the responsibility of developing our country using our own domestic resources. Partners and investors are welcome, but guided by our own vision and national priority areas. We are recording unprecedented development and economic success milestones. For the last three years, our country has been the fastest growing economy in our southern Africa region. Further, Zimbabwe is prioritizing the eradication of poverty and improving the quality of life of our people, particularly those in rural areas. The empowerment and the capacitation of communal and small-scale farmers has seen us realize food and nutrition security at both household and national level. With effect from this year, our country will become a net exporter of wheat. Zimbabwe has not been spared from the negative impact of climate change. Hence, my government continues to make the requisite investment in infrastructure to mitigate and build resilience towards climate change adaptation. Dams are being built across the country. In addition, we have begun an ambitious and yet achievable program to sink solar-powered balls in each of our country's 35,000 rural villages and schools. Alongside each of these water points, 
are commercial nutritional gardens for the empowerment of our women and youth. Through the use of our own resources, we have constructed an unprecedented number of schools, clinics, and provided other social amenities throughout our communities. Mr. President, today's realities across all regions bring to the fore the importance of global solidarity. No nation, no matter how powerful, can stand alone to realize sustainable and inclusive development. The high-level meetings on universal health coverage, tuberculosis and pandemic prevention, preparedness and response are welcome opportunities to reflect on the importance of maintaining essential services during pandemics and health emergencies. The realization of affordable and quality health delivery, as outlined under SDG3, is a key deliverable for my administration. Science, technology, and innovation are essential ingredients to leapfrog the modernization and industrialization of developing countries. To this end, Zimbabwe continues to reap the benefits of a comprehensive and transformative heritage-based higher education curriculum. The innovation hubs and industrial parks established within institutions of higher education have refocused young people in our tertiary institutions towards developing and producing goods and services. Allow me to reaffirm that Zimbabwe is actually open for business. Mr. President, building resilience and tackling the adverse impact of climate change should be an urgent priority for us all. In the case of Zimbabwe and the Southern Africa region, floods and droughts have affected the livelihoods of many while hindering progress or national development. May I express my deepest condolences and sympathies to the government and peoples of the Kingdom of Morocco and the State of Libya on the recent loss of lives as a result of the devastating impact of climate change. There is need for concrete climate action as opposed to mere promises so that we strengthen our adaptation, resilience and mitigation mechanisms. We must transition to a low-carbon and resilient global economy by increasing investments in renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, and a green infrastructure. Commitments made under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement must be honored to deliver climate justice. It is our hope that Progress will be made, operationalize the loss and damage fund. Zimbabwe is implementing a climate change policy and response strategy while disaster management and the early warning systems continue to be strengthened. Mr. President, the need to reform global financial institutions is of essence to unlock funding for developing countries. The current exclusionary architecture, dominated by a few states, is failing to deliver the requisite resources for countries to finance their developmental priorities and other pressing health 
and environmental challenges. The shortcomings in the last round of SDR allocations should be addressed. Zimbabwe supports the stimulus package proposed by the United Nations Secretary General. We further call for the long-term concessional loans, increased access to unused special drawing rights, as well as the use of modalities such as debt cancellation and restructuring as a stimulus for developing countries to grow their economies and to build greater resilience. We strongly condemn tendencies by some powerful countries who preach peace, human rights and democracy, and yet clandestinely fund conflicts and the unconstitutional change of governments for their own narrow interests. We further condemn the use of unilateral and illegal sanctions as a foreign policy tool at the disposal of some powerful nations, such as those sanctions imposed on Zimbabwe and the countries like Cuba. Such actions hamper the trust, global solidarity and the multilateralism we desire. It is important that we channel our collective efforts towards building peace and driving forward our development agenda for shared prosperity. There is much more that unites us than that which divides us. Similarly, the establishment of a fair and inclusive global security architecture has become urgent. The maintenance of peace and security should never be the preserve of a privileged few. Zimbabwe reaffirms calls by Africa for the reform of the United Nations Security Council in line with Ezurini consensus and the CETA declaration. Mr. President, allow me to conclude by reaffirming Zimbabwe's commitment to the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter as we implement our Global Agenda 2030. Collectively, let us restore human dignity, peace, security and stability while safeguarding our planet for the shared prosperity of present and future generations together in unity and harmony. We are stronger. I thank you for listening. <clears throat> On behalf of the Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the Republic of Zimbabwe for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort His Excellency. That was the President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, Emerson M. Nangagwa, uh, speaking before the United Nations General Assembly last week uh, in New York City. Now we want to listen to the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, speaking at the United Nations General Assembly, 78th session. I invite him to address the Assembly on behalf of the General Assembly. Assalamun alaikum. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina wa nabiyyina Muhammadin wa alihi tahirin wa sahbihi al-muntajabin. 
فبشر عباد الذين يستمعون القول فيتبعون احسنه آقای رئیس انتخاب جنابالی را به ریاست هفتاد و هشتمین نشست مجموعی سازمان ملل متحد تبریک میگویم I congratulate you and give you felicitations on the 78th uh, General Assembly of the United Nations. Since last year when I addressed everyone from this podium, the world has witnessed bitter as well as sweet events. But the world, nearly eight decades following the establishment of the United Nations, the new session of the General Assembly commences as the world is experiencing unprecedented and historic changes. Meanwhile, the assurance of a luminous future for human society lies in the devoted observance of lofty virtues that guide people towards excellence and noble ideals. What better source than the word of the Creator to encapsulate the essence of humanity and elevate the inherent values of mankind. Distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen, the Holy Quran beckons humanity towards rationality, spirituality, the truth and justice. It expounds upon the unity of mankind, proclaiming all earthly inhabitants. It seeks to guide all towards human dignity, which will lead to the blessings sought by mankind. What has the Quran said to infuriate and focus the attention of those who seek power and hold the reins of power. The Quran says, humans do not accept oppression. And with this pursuit, you will be able to reach elevated divine values. The Quran speaks of equality among humans. It says that they were all created equally from a single mother and father. The Quran, even though there are differences, natural differences between men and women, sees them as completing one another and direct in the eyes of the Creator and equal in the eyes of the Creator. The Quran defends the sanctity of the family and sees children as gifts entrusted to us by God. Moreover, the Quran deems, believes in serving those who have less than we do, and it directs our beliefs and faiths as forbidden recognizing the sanctity 
of these values. Is this the first time that the words of God of the Omnipotent are being burned? Presuming while they do so that they can extinguish the divine voice for eternity? Did Nimrod, Pharaoh, Karon, and Caesar triumph over Abraham, Moses, and Jesus? The Quran forbids all forms of violence in human interactions and deems respect towards Abraham, Moses, and Jesus on par and equal to with the sanctity for the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. These understandings that bring unity and divine teachings that inspire that build human characters, that build societies, that build progress for human societies will never be burned, is eternal. They remain impervious. The fires of disrespect will not will not overcome the truth, the divine truth. Mr. President, Islamophobia and cultural apartheid witnessed in Western countries evident in actions ranging from the desecration of the Holy Quran to the ban on hijab in schools and numerous other deplorable discriminations are, are not worthy of human dignity. Even more concerning is that behind the scene there seems to be an agenda which seeks to divert attention with using the tool of freedom of speech as one Westerner said now that the West is faced with a crisis of identity sees the world as a jungle and presents itself in the best of light, lights as a beautiful garden. And some potent interests see this fabrication as their tools of choice. These apartheid has targeted the Muslim community, particularly the immigrants, immigrants who are themselves victims of colonial policies. In alignment with all adherents of faith and advocates for freedom, we firmly believe that reverence for religions should hold a prominent position on the United Nations agenda. 
in order to indoctrinate the proper framework for respect to all world religions. Concurrently with the war on Islam, we are also seeing a war against the framework of the family. The family is the most fundamental column that has supported human development, which is now under attack. Today, crimes against humanity are not just the occupation of lands and oppression against people and mass killings, but it's also a concerted attack on the family itself that is also a crime against humanity, the protection of the nucleus of the family made up of the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman is an inherent truth to be accepted by the entire world. The proper teachings of the populations at large throughout the world, unless done so within the framework of the family, were not seek will not yield the desired results. These are divine words, mother, father, natural words and concepts such as family. Actions that can be seen as wanting to bring cessation to the human race itself. We are today in need of a world movement that brings commitment to the existence of the framework of the family so that all members of the families can experience life in peace and stability next to each other. We ask, therefore, all religious leaders to adhere to their historical responsibilities in defending the sanctity of the family and move against fabrications we expect from the United Nations to put a very high priority on its agenda and give the proper protection to the framework of the family. Ladies and gentlemen, we find ourselves at a critical junction in history. The global landscape is also undergoing a paradigm shift towards an emerging international order, a trajectory that is not reversible. The equation attributed to the hegemony of the West no longer resonates with the diverse realities of today's world. The former old liberal order catering to the ambitions of voracious rulers whose hunger has no end and to that of the capitalists has been relegated to obsolescence. In short, to endeavor to universalize American ideals throughout the world have proven to be failures. The Iranian nation takes pride in having instrumentally unmasked the true nature of the rulers in both the East and West through its Islamic revolution. In conjunction with other nations of West Asia, Iran has played a significant role in defeating the global arrogance. Now that global nations exhibit heightened resistance and awareness as non-Western powers have emerged, there is a collective hope for the establishment of a novel and equitable world order. 
central to the forthcoming international order is the abandonment of global arrogance in favor of regional cooperation and orders. The Islamic Republic of Iran advocates for maximum economic and political convergence within and between regions and is interested in interacting with the global community under the principle of justice. However, as independent nations increasingly align themselves towards cooperation and convergence, certain powers are attempting to incite conflict in different regions. Employing a Cold War mentality, they strive to reconstitute blocks on a global scale. This regressive endeavor poses a significant threat to the security and prosperity of nations. The Islamic Republic of Iran staunchly maintains that the formation of new East-West divides should not be permitted to take shape making trade corridors unsafe, diminishing countries from allies to dependents, stifling the economic progress of sovereign nations, and fomenting proxy wars across Asia and Europe are all elements of this sinister chain. Ironically, these actions are put forth in the name of defending democracy. However, the global community, including nations in West Asia, have discerned the true essence of Western democracy, an appellation that all too often is a codename for coup d'etats, occupations, and ongoing wars. The true nature of the liberal democracy project has become evident to the world, revealing it to be nothing more than a velvet glove hiding a cast iron hand, a school that was once envisioned as a beacon for the world has transformed into a cautionary tale illustrating the limitations and shortcomings of the system, nearing the conclusion of its trajectory. Ladies and gentlemen, right at a time where certain powers are steering the world towards more wars, the Islamic Republic of Iran has put forward a policy of neighborhood and integration. This policy of neighborhood is a benevolent one towards the region and is prioritized on the regional agenda. The Islamic Republic extends a warm welcome to any hand that is extended in friendship, firmly believing that an independent and robust neighborhood represents an opportunity for the entire region. We will welcome any extended hand quite warmly. A stable and powerful neighbor is healthy for a stable region. Having traversed Traversed two decades of imposed tensions and crises within our region, the fruit of resilience from free nations from Syria to Palestine to Yemen to Afghanistan, the future prospects of the region can be secured through the cultivation of profound mutual political trust, fostering extensive economic cooperation and establishing indigenous security measures. In alignment with this vision, 
Iran has established a new chapter of constructive relationship with like-minded neighboring countries through membership in regional and international mechanisms such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or the Northeast Economic Corridor. We have prioritized these developments in order to bring their benefits and their fruits for all of the people of the region. The Islamic Republic of Iran also stands ready in order to decrease the effects of climate change to bring her capacity, her national capacity for renewable energy production and share those with other countries. In the security sector, the good neighbor policy seeks to increase regional cooperation and forbidden external meddling from the Caucasus to the Persian Gulf. Any type of foreign presence not only is not part of the solution, but it is the problem itself. From the Caucasus to the Persian Gulf, any type of foreign presence, not only it is not part of the solution, but it is the problem and the difficulty itself. We see the security of the neighbors as our own security, and any type of insecurity for them is insecurity for us. With benevolence and goodwill, we have taken initiatives throughout the region, even though bringing together politics and security needs strengthening. This process needs to be strengthened and can only be, re be realized when it's accompanied by meaningful economic cooperation. The, West, the area of Western Asia, due to continued military attacks and occupations, it has been negated many opportunities for progress and development. Now that under the holy leadership of the Supreme Leader of the Islamic Revolution, Imam Khamenei, we have been able to drive back the rotten foundations of terrorism, we have created new opportunities for the region. The power of the Islamic Republic of Iran is an empowering security, and we seek to extend our hands to neighboring countries in order to bring about new horizons of hope and success for the entire region. We believe that this is a collaborative effort in the Muslim world. And this requires the participation of all. And this is the only pathway to blessings and success in West Asia. The Islamic Republic of Iran has many and rare opportunities for investments which represent a great opportunity for countries from throughout the world and the region. Mr. President, dear attendees, last year was the year of the victory of the people of Iran, certain Western nations, and their intelligence services during the past year made a grave mistake by the miscalculation that sought to diminish 
and undervalue and underestimate the power of Iranian people. Since the Islamic Revolution's victory under the leadership of Imam Khomeini, the enemies of Iran through various and continuous and incessant plots sought to impose their will on our people. More than 44 years, these policies have been defeated by the Iranian people, and the Iranian people have stood victorious again and again. Now they are faced, the enemies are faced with an Islamic Republic that is the power of whom is based and the progress of which is based on profound ties with its people. During the past year, the people of Iran witnessed the most significant waves of a media and psychological war waged against them. The United States of America, which now possesses the biggest women's prison, therefore mother's prisons in Iran, can sincerely, sincerely be the defender of women's rights. Now, the picture that they sought to introduce to the world from Iran was by commingling legitimate with illegitimate news, by fabricating lies and fake reports. Realities from Iran were censored throughout the world in order to negate the truth. Have you ever heard anything about the chemical bombardment against the Iranian people, those chemical weapons that were supplied by certain European countries to Saddam Hussein. Have you seen those whose bodies are severely and gravely damaged by chemical attacks who are still alive but in hospital for 35 years? Have you seen their photos and images? Have you seen ill children who cannot overcome immune system diseases because of sanctions imposed on us that prevents obtaining proper medication for their treatment? Have you seen those, those photos? Uh, have you seen the pictures of patience, of sacrifice, and steadfast fortitude of the Islamic people of Iran? Have you seen those pictures? Have you seen the unprecedented movement of the remembrance of the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, the Prophet Muhammad's grandson, 22 million strong marching towards his burial site for the anniversary of his martyrdom. Many countries' safeties today throughout our region are owed to the sacrifices of our martyr general, Hajj Ghassim Soleimani, had it not been for his sacrifice, the hero of anti-terrorism activities. Many of the countries in the region would have burned to the ground in the fires set by ISIS and Daesh. Have you, have you seen, do you recall the steadfast stories of heroic fights against terrorism through Hollywood-like generated reports in the news media? Have you seen the 25 million strong funeral of the late commander, General Qasem Soleimani, 
throughout Iran. Those were censored throughout the world in the West. The terror act, terrorist act of his assassination was a prize given to Daesh on a silver platter, whom according, whom according to certain American officials had confessed that ISIS was an American creation. This, his killing, his martyrdom was a gift to that same ISIS. Instead of recognizing him for his sacrifices, he is assassinated. Why? But the Islamic Republic of Iran, through the use of all tools and capacities in order to bring to justice the perpetrators and all those who had a hand in this government-sanctioned act of terror will not sit until that is done. The blood of the oppressed will not be forgotten and the robes of the guilty will bring them to justice. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, dear heads of states, representatives, uh, most, most serious uh, threats in West Asia are extremism and fundamentalism. The eradication of terrorism, through an all-encompassing fight against their very roots and the very reasons that gave rise to them throughout the world will not be achieved. The surgical use of terrorists by certain Western governments as a political tool will be overcome by the collective will of the people of the region. Certain intelligence and security services of Western uh, countries by in a very targeted fashion moving terrorists from area to area in the region in order to be able to capitalize on their devastating capacities. They keep being asked why have you given refuge again and again to officially recognized terror groups who have the blood of over 17,000 Iranian martyrs on their hands, as well as our head of state, prime minister, and congressional representatives. Why do the Europeans behave in this way? They must give a reasonable answer. Why do they say and portray that they're fighting against terror, however they give refuge to terrorists? This is a double standard. Discrimination in the fight against terrorism is a green light given to terrorists themselves. Iran, who herself is, has been the biggest target of terrorists, has been at the forefront of fighting terrorism in the region. The people of the region see Iran as a secure partner for their own security, and the occupying regime uh, of Jer in Jerusalem is seen as a perpetrator of much of the violence in the region. Has the time not come to bring an end to seven and a half decades of the occupation of Palestinian lands, of the demolition of their homes, of the blood of their women and children, and for the people of Palestine to be recognized officially as a country, the continuation of the occupation of the Zionist regime of certain Syrian and Lebanese and Palestinian territories 
and the lack of recognition, the recognition to the people of Palestine has been a negation of their inherent rights and the lack of formulation of a proper Palestinian government with its rightful capital in Jerusalem has been a tool used at the hand of certain governments in the region. Certain foundations that have been laid in the region by certain countries based on lies and destruction and occupation, those countries cannot be partners for peace. The situation today in Afghanistan represents another example of foreign meddling in the region, which has led to the killing of over 70,000 men, women, and children. In Afghanistan, Iran insists on an all-encompassing government with the participation of all Afghan groups and population, but the assistance of the world is needed in order to address the crisis of refugees who have been driven from their land from Afghanistan, a great many of whom are being given refuge in Islamic Iran today. Vis-a-vis -vis the Ukrainian crisis and the war, I would like to remind everyone again of our position, an ambiguous position. As the Islamic Republic, we do not stand nor support any war anywhere, not in Europe nor anywhere else. We do not see any war to benefit any side in Europe. Any type of tension and flaming, fanning the flames of violence in Ukraine has been done by the United States of America in order to weaken the European countries. And this is a long-term plan, unfortunately. We support any initiative for a cessation of hostilities and the war and support any political measure. We fully announce our support for such initiative. Mr. President. Ladies and gentlemen, the Americans, Americans leaving the JCPOA showed an official trampling upon their commitments by that government. It was an inappropriate response to our fulfillment of commitments within that framework by having broken the agreement uh, in, within the framework of Resolution 2231 passed by the UN Security Council, it has committed egregious and unilateral crime in the international arena. The United States of America must explain transparently and demonstrate in a verifiable fashion that it does wish to reach a proper conclusion and show her commitment and choose a way, choose a path, either JCPOA or not, and whether the European countries, uh, by the same token, who ignore resolution, UN Security Council Resolution 2231 and their commitments within the framework of the JCPOA, they will ultimately lose on this path. Rest assured that nuclear weapons have no place in the defensive doctrine and the military doctrine of the Islamic Republic of Iran. 
the international organizations' multiple official reports have stated as much. The Islamic Republic of Iran as two decades ago will never will never fall short of obtaining the inherent right of the Iranian nation to have peaceful nuclear energy. Not only we have lived up to our commitments, but unfortunately the United States not only doesn't adhere to her commitments within any framework of international treaties such as the NPT, but it does impose sanctions with that excuse as a political tool on people such as the people of Iran. But I am saying today that these sanctions have not yielded the desired results. It is time now for the United States to bring a cessation to her traveling on the wrong path and choose the right side. Ladies and gentlemen, Humanity is entering a new framework. Old powers will keep their current downward trajectory. They are the past and we are the future. I repeat once again, they represent the past and we represent the future. We are the future. Our viewpoint towards the future is one of hope. The world awaits the day that has been promised by all faiths throughout the world, by all Abrahamic faiths, that ultimate seeker of justice does exist. We do believe that according to divine will, just as divine prophets have promised, justice and fairness will overtake the world. And the rule of the sincere people, those who truly follow the path of the omnipotent, will reverberate throughout the world. A world that rejects ignorance. The world awaits the day in which the old path will come to an end. I do thank you for all of your attention and your presence here today. May the blessings of the Omnipotent be upon you and your loved ones. The Assembly would like to thank the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort His Excellency. The Assembly will now hear an Welcome back, and that was uh, the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran addressing uh, the United Nations General Assembly uh, just uh, several days ago in New York City uh, for the 78th session of uh, the United Nations General Assembly uh, held annually in uh, New York City. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, September 30th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again. And if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to uh, the 
Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go uh, to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, the Pan-African Newswire is a seven-day-a-week, uh, 24-hour-a-day uh, news service. Uh, it's updated on a daily basis, and it ha- also has links uh, to many of the leading uh, websites, news sources uh, throughout Africa and, indeed, uh, throughout the world. And uh, my name is Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now we'd like to go back uh, to uh, the state of Palestine, uh, where uh, the United Nations General Assembly president of the state of Palestine, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, delivered an address uh, during uh, the proceedings. And uh, we're going to listen uh, to that address. And, of course, Palestine uh, has been fighting for well over 75 years uh, for uh, its to self-determination, nationhood, and sovereignty in West Asia. Yet uh, the United States has continued to support uh, the state of Israel. And uh, that, of course, has repressed and prevented uh, the Palestinian people from gaining their genuine national uh, liberation uh, in that part of uh, West Asia. And um, it is important uh, to understand uh, that um, a lot of the uh, turmoil uh, in the entire region uh, is directly related uh, to uh, the situation in Palestine, the role of the state of Israel in uh, carrying out uh, terrorist acts, occupations against people uh, who are simply trying to exercise their right of self-determination. Let's listen to uh, President Mahmoud Abbas at uh, the United Nations General Assembly 78th session. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Mahmoud Abbas, President of the State of Palestine, and to invite him to address the Assembly. In the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful, His Excellency, Mr. Dennis Francis, President of the United Nations General Assembly, His Excellency, Mr. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, ladies and gentlemen, heads and members of delegations, may peace Blessings and the mercy of God be upon you. Those who think that peace can prevail in the Middle East without the Palestinian people enjoying their full 
legitimate and national rights would be mistaken. Once again, I come to you carrying the cause of my people who are struggling for freedom and independence to remind you of the tragedy caused by the Nakba 75 years ago. The effects of this Nakba continue and are exacerbated by the Israeli occupation of our land. This occupation challenges your resolutions over a thousand resolutions, in fact. This occupation violates the principles of international law and international legitimacy, while it races against time to change the historical, geographical, and demographic reality on the ground aimed at perpetuating the occupation and entrenching apartheid. Despite this painful reality, And 30 years after the Oslo Accords, which Israel has totally discarded, we still maintain hope that your esteemed organization will be able to implement its resolutions demanding an end to the Israeli occupation of our territory and realizing the independence of the fully sovereign state of Palestine with East Jerusalem as its capital on the borders of the 4th June 1967, as well as resolving the issue of Palestinian refugees in accordance with the resolutions of international legitimacy, especially General Assembly Resolution Number 194 and the relevant General Assembly and Security Council resolutions, all of which affirm the illegality of the Israeli occupation and its settlements, in particular Resolution 2334 and the Arab Peace Initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, as I stand before you here, the Israeli racist right-wing government continues its attacks on our people and through its army and its racist terrorist settlers continues to intimidate and kill our people, to destroy homes and property, to, to steal our money and resources, and continue to refuse to release the bodies of the martyrs. 600 bodies are being held. For what reason, I do not know. And this is done before the very eyes of the world and with complete impunity. Rather, the leaders and the ministers of this government have even been bragging about their apartheid policies that they are practicing against our people who are under occupation. The Israeli occupation government also persists in its violations of the city of Jerusalem and its people. It continues to assault our Islamic and Christian sacred sites. 
it violates the historical and legal status of the holy site, especially the blessed Al-Aqsa Mosque, which international legitimacy has recognized as an exclusive place of worship for Muslims alone, including the Bab al-Rahma prayer hall and the Al-Buraq wall. According to a report, according to a resolution by the League of Nations in 1930, the occupying power is also feverishly digging tunnels under and around Al-Aqsa Mosque, threatening its collapse or the collapse of parts of it, which would lead to an explosion with untold consequences. We have repeatedly warned against transforming the political conflict into a religious conflict for which Israel will bear full responsibility. I hereby call on the international community to assume its responsibilities in preserving the historic and legal status of Jerusalem and its holy sites, specifically the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Ibrahimi Mosque in Al-Khalil, Hebron. Here I wonder why I remain silent about all the fragrant violations of international law that are being committed by Israel, the occupying power. Why is it Israel being subjected to serious accountability why are sanctions not imposed on it for ignoring and violating international resolutions, as is the case with other countries in the world? Why practice double standards when it comes to Israel? Why accept that Israel is a state above the law? Is it not time? To answer these questions? Is it not time? For our part, we will persist with our pursuit of accountability and justice at the relevant international bodies against Israel because of the continued Israeli occupation of our land and the crimes that have been committed and are still being committed against us as well as against both Britain and America for their roles in the fateful Balfour Declaration. Yes, America and Britain. And against everyone who had a role in the catastrophe and tragedy of our people. We will not forget history. We will not forget pain. We call for acknowledgement. We call for apology. Acknowledgement and apology. We call for reparations. We call for compensation in accordance with international law. Ladies and gentlemen, in light of the deadlock in the peace process, due to Israel's policies, we come before you to again appeal for the holding of an international peace conference. Is this too much to ask? Hold an international peace conference in which all countries concerned with achieving peace in the Middle East will participate. Therefore, I ask your esteemed organization, 
and the Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, to call for and undertake the necessary arrangements to convene this peace conference, which may be the last opportunity, the last opportunity to salvage the two-state solution and to prevent the situation from deteriorating more seriously and threatening the security and stability of our region and the entire world. I also call on your organization and the Secretary General to act to implement the resolutions to provide protection for the Palestinian people. We demand protection. We want to be protected from occupation, from the constant aggressions of the occupation army and the terrorist Israeli settlers. We call for support when we approach international courts and bodies with jurisdiction because the current situation is intolerable. Ladies and gentlemen, in the face of all that Israel is doing, systematically destroying the two-state solution, it's become necessary and in order to save the solution, to call on member states of your esteemed organization, each state in its national capacity, to take practical steps on the basis of the relevant resolutions of international legitimacy and international law. I also call on the states that have not yet recognized the state of Palestine to declare their recognition. I call for the State of Palestine to be admitted to full membership in the United Nations. There are two states that the entire world are talking about, Israel and Palestine, but only Israel is recognized. Why not Palestine? I can neither understand nor accept that some states, including, including America and European states, are reluctant to recognize the state of Palestine, which the United Nations has accepted as an observer state. These same states confirm every day that they support the two-state solution, but they recognize only one of these states, namely Israel. Why? What is the danger posed by the state of Palestine obtaining full membership in the United Nations? What is the danger? Israel enjoys this international recognition, though it has not adhered to the conditions for its accession to the United Nations. It did not adhere. These conditions, namely, are the implementation of Resolutions 181 and 194. We therefore call on your esteemed organization to take deterrent measures against Israel until it fulfills its obligations at least that were presented in a written declaration by its Minister of Foreign Affairs at the time, Moshe Sharet. He sent a written commitment to implement these resolutions in 1949, but nothing has happened since. This request of ours is for the sake of peace and justice and out of respect for international law international legitimacy, 
and this esteemed organization. Ladies and gentlemen, our people are defending their homelands and their legitimate rights through peaceful, popular resistance. This is our policy. It is a strategic option for self-defense and to liberate the land from a colonial occupation that does not believe in peace and has no regard for the principles of truth, justice, and human values. We will continue our resistance, our peaceful, popular resistance of this brutal occupation until it is defeated from our land. We are managing our affairs under extremely difficult and complex circumstances as a result of the restrictions imposed on us by the occupying power. These restrictions prevent us from accessing our natural resources. The occupying power unlawfully withholds our money with no just cause. It continues to besiege our people in the Gaza Strip, only deepening the suffering of our people. Moreover, Israel bears full responsibility through its control over all crossing points and dividing lines between the occupied West Bank and its surroundings. It is fully responsible for these points and lines and for the deliberate spread of weapons, drugs, and criminal killings taking place in the Arab cities inside Israel these days. Every day there's a case of murder that Israel is responsible for, part of which is spilling over into our areas, thus creating a great threat to the social security of Palestinians everywhere in our territory. Allow me here to tell you that as long as we continue to suffer under the abhorrent Israeli occupation, we will continue to need financial assistance from the international community. When the occupation ends, we will thank you for your help. In addition to the crucial provision of financial support to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA, it is in dire need so that it could support the refugees. We are thankful to the international community for the support it has given us to build our state and our economy. And we look forward to the continuation of this support until the occupation ends. Help us get rid of the occupation and we would be able to rely on ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, our state institutions are engaged in a comprehensive development and reform process. And in this context, they are cooperating with international institutions and with partners in the region and the world. Recently, we held local elections and elections for institutions, federations, unions, and others. There's a specialized committee to develop the justice sector in Palestine. Civil society is also playing its role in adding vitality 
to our political system. All that remains is for us to hold democratic general elections as conducted in 1996, 2005, and 2006. We held elections, but since then we have been unable to hold these elections. Why? Because the Israeli government is obstructing this by its decision to prevent elections from being held in East Jerusalem. In the first three rounds of elections, elections were allowed in East Jerusalem. They were not stopped, despite the significant interventions by many countries and regional and international organizations, which we appreciate, to enable our Palestinian people in Jerusalem to vote and run as candidates in these elections. Today, we renew our rejection of any position holding us responsible for not convening these elections, which are a Palestinian necessity that we want today before tomorrow. We want elections, but we want them to be held in East Jerusalem. Why is Israel stopping us from doing so? Please ask it. In the face of this intransigent position, of the Israeli government, we will continue to approach the relevant international bodies to hold the Israeli government accountable and force it to allow us to hold these elections that are long overdue. Ladies and gentlemen, I participated in May in the commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba of 1948, a tragedy recognized by this August organization. This painful anniversary continues to be ignored and denied by Israel, which is the party that is primarily responsible for this Nakba. I call upon you today to criminalize this denial criminalize the denial of the Nakba and designate the 15th of May of each year an international day to commemorate the anniversary of the Nakba, to commemorate the lives of the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were killed in massacres committed by Zionist gangs. Palestinians whose villages were demolished and who were forcibly displaced from their homes the number of these refugees reached 950,000 people, 950, people in 1948, constituting more than half of the Palestinian population at the time. This is the least that the United Nations should do to honor these victims and to condemn this human tragedy, to commemorate the anniversary of the Nakba in 1948. Ladies and gentlemen, for several years now, we have presented our Palestinian narrative, the story of our people that has been deliberately distorted by the Zionist and Israeli propaganda. We are relieved that the peoples of the world and many countries in the world have started 
to believe our narrative and sympathize with it after having been misled for decades. We also thank all those who contributed to sharing this narrative and supporting it and sympathizing it. We thank people of conscience everywhere in the world who today stand up for Palestinian rights. We want and we thank support for our people's struggle for freedom and independence. Ladies and gentlemen, my message today to the Israelis is that this hideous occupation that is imposed on us will not last regardless of their ambitions and their delusions because the Palestinian people will remain on their land which they have inhabited for thousands of years, one generation after the other, as again confirmed by a recent UNESCO resolution on the city of Jericho, which has existed for 10,000 years. The Palestinians cannot leave their land, and if anyone must leave this land, then it must be the occupier the occupier should leave, not the people of the land. We will stay in our land. My message to the international community is that it should assume its responsibilities with full courage and implement its resolutions to realize Palestinian rights. We ask for no more than that. Realize our rights. Implement our resolutions. 1,000 resolutions have been adopted. We are asking to implement just one. Just one resolution. Finally, I address all of our people in Palestine, in the refugee camps, in the diaspora, and every place in this vast world. I address you with the highest expressions of appreciation and gratitude for your steadfastness, for upholding your just cause and your rights. I pay tribute to our righteous martyrs and our brave prisoners and our heroic injured people. And I say to everyone, a right is never lost when there is a demand behind it. Victory is ours. We will celebrate the independence of our state in Jerusalem, our eternal capital and the crown jewel and the flower of all cities. They see it as impossible, and we see it as inevitable. God willing, peace and mercy and blessings be upon you. On behalf of the Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the State of Palestine for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort His Excellency. Excellencies, distinguished delegates, the Assembly will continue its consideration of agenda item entitled General Debate. The Assembly will now hear an address by His Excellency Charles Michel, President of the European Council of the European Union. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. 
Welcome back. And that was uh, a speech from Mahmoud Abbas, president of the state of Palestine. Our final address uh, for this program comes from uh, the president of the Republic of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel. Let's listen in. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Miguel Diaz-Canel. President, I am bringing to this Assembly the voice of the South, the exploited and humiliated, as was said by Che Guevara in this same room almost 60 years ago. We are a diverse group of nations sharing the same problems. We have just confirmed that in Havana which was honored to host the Summit of Leaders and other high representatives of the G77 in China, which is the most representative, broad, and diverse representation that exists in the multilateral arena. During those two virtually tireless days, more than 100 representatives from 134 nations making up the group raised their voices the call for changes that can no longer be postponed in the midst of this unjust, irrational and abusive international economic order that year after year has deepened the enormous inequalities between a minority of well-developed nations and a majority that has not managed to get rid of the euphemism of developing nations. Worse still, as was recognized by the United Nations Secretary General at the Havana Summit, the G77 was founded six decades ago to repair centuries of injustice and abandonment. And in today's convulsive world, they are entangled in a host of world crises where poverty is on the rise and hunger is even greater. We are united by the need to change, which has not been resolved, and by the condition of being the main victims of the current global multidimensional crisis abusive unequal exchange, scientific and technological gaps, and the degradation of the environment. But we are also united and have been for more than half a century now by the inescapable challenge and the determination to transform the current international order, which as well as being exclusionary and irrational is unsustainable for the planet and is not viable for the well-being of all. The countries represented at the G77 and China, where more than 80% of the population lives, are, do not only have the challenge of development, they also have the responsibility of modifying those structures which marginalize us from social progress and turn many peoples of the South into laboratories for new, renewed forms of domination. A new and more just global contract is imperative. President, only seven years ahead of the deadline established to implement the promising 2030 agenda, the panorama is bleak. This august institution has already recognized it. At the current pace, none of the 17 SDGs will be achieved, and over half of the 169 agreed targets will not be met. In the midst of the 21st century, the fact that almost 800 million people suffer from hunger in a planet that produces enough to feed all is outrageous. Equally outrageous is the fact that in the era of knowledge and accelerated development of ICTs, 
more than 760 million people, two-thirds of them women, do not know how to read or write. The efforts of developing countries are not enough to implement the 2030 Agenda. They must be supported by concrete actions to provide access to markets, financing under fair and preferential conditions, technology transfer and north-south cooperation. We are not begging for alms or asking for favours. The G77 calls for rights and will continue to demand a profound transformation of the current international financial architecture because it is deeply unjust, anachronistic and dysfunctional. Because it was designed to profit with the reserves of the South, to perpetuate a system of domination that increases underdevelopment and replicates a pattern of modern colonialism. We need and demand financial institutions in which our countries have true decision-making capacity and access to financing. A recapitalization of multilateral development banks is imperative to radically improve their lending conditions and to meet the financial needs of the South. The member countries of this group were forced to allocate $379 billion from their reserves to protect their currencies in 2022, almost twice as much as the amount of special drawing rights allocated by, to them by the IMF. A rationalization, review and change of role of credit qualifying agencies is needed. Equally imperative is to establish criteria that would go beyond the GDP to define the access of developing countries to financing under favorable conditions and with adequate technical cooperation. While the richest countries fail to meet the commitment of allocating at least 0.7% of their uh, national uh, the GDP to official assistance for development, the nations of the South need to spend up to 14% of their incomes to pay the interests associated with external debt. Most of the G77 nations are forced to allocate more resources to servicing debt than to investments in health or education. What sustainable development can be achieved with that noose around their necks? The group today reiterates its call to public, multilateral and private creditors to refinance the debt through credit guarantees, lower interest and longer expiration deadlines. We insist on the implementation of a multilateral mechanism to reschedule the sovereign debt with an effective participation of the countries of the South that will allow for a fair, balanced and development-oriented treatment. It is imperative to redesign once and for all the debt instruments and to include activation provisions to alleviate and reschedule as soon as a country becomes affected by natural catastrophes and problems that are microeconomic problems that are so common amongst the vulnerable nations. President, no one in their right mind is denying now that climate change threatens the survival of all with irreversible effects. It is also a secret to no one that those who are least responsible for climate change are those who are suffering the most from its effects, particularly small island development state, developing states. 
Industrialized countries, meanwhile, are the voracious predators of resources and of the environment, but they elude their greatest responsibility and fail to comply with their commitments and uh, the Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement. Just to mention one example, it is profoundly disappointing that the goal of mobilizing no less than $100 billion a year up to 2020 as climate financing has never been met. On the eve of the 28th COP, the G77 countries will have as a priority the exercise of the global balance, the implementation of the loss and damage fund, the definition of the framework for the adaptation goal, and the establishment of the new climate financing goal, which fully abides by the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. The G77 is convening a summit of leaders of the South to be held on the 2nd of December in the context of COP28 in Dubai. This initiative is unprecedented in the context of a conference of the parties and will be a forum to articulate positions within our group at the highest level in the context of climate negotiations. COP28 will show whether or not, beyond speeches, there is a real political will on the part of developed nations to achieve the agreement, agreements required in this field that cannot be postponed for any longer. President, for the G77, the priority is to change once and for all the paradigms of science, technology and innovation which is limited to the environment and perspectives of the North, thus depriving the international scientific community of a considerable intellectual capital. The successful Havana Summit launched an urgent appeal to concentrate science, technology and innovation around the Sustainable Development Goals. There, we decided to resume the work of the Consortium of Science, Technology and Innovation for the South, with the purpose of promoting joint research projects and promoting the joining up of production systems so that they could reduce their dependence on the markets of the North. We also agreed to promote a call for convening in 2025 a high-level meeting of the United Nations General Assembly on Science, Technology and Innovation for Development. The 17 cooperation projects that Cuba has designed in the context of its chairmanship of the G77 will contribute to channeling the potentials of South-South and triangular cooperation. We call on the richest nations and on international bodies to participate in these initiatives. Cuba will not falter in its efforts to promote the creative potential influence and leadership of the G77. Our group has a lot to contribute to multilateralism, stability, justice, and the rationality that the world requires today. Excellencies, added to the problems and challenges characterizing the reality of our nations and mobilizing peoples are the unilateral coercive measures, euphemistically called sanctions, which have become a practice of powerful states that intend to act as universal judges and to weaken and destroy economies and isolate and subject sovereign states. Cuba is not the first sovereign state against which measures of that sort are applied, but it is the one 
being subjected to them for the longest period of time, despite world condemnation, which is expressed almost unanimously every year in this assembly, but which is disrespected and un goes unheard by the government of the biggest economic, financial and military power in the world. We were not the first and we are not the last. Pressures to isolate and weaken economies and sovereign states are also today affecting Venezuela, Nicaragua, and both before and after these have been the prelude to invasions and the overthrowing of uncomfortable governments in the Middle East. We reject unilateral coercive measures in countries such as Zimbabwe, Syria, the, public, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and Iran, amongst many other countries whose people have been suffering from the negative impacts of these measures. We reiterate our solidarity with the Palestinian cause and support the right to self-determination of the Sahrawi people. Let us all struggle for a world of peace without wars or conflicts. Five years ago, I spoke for the first time from this rostrum that had been taken before by the historical leader of the Cuban Revolution, Commander-in-Chief Fidel Castro Ruz and Army General Raul Castro Ruz, to speak these truths and to speak the ideals of peace and justice of a small archipelago that has resisted and will continue to resist. To live up to the dignity, courage and unbreakable strength of its people and history. But I cannot stand at this global tribune without denouncing once again the fact that for 60 years now, Cuba is suffering from an asphyxiating economic blockade designed to depress its income and living standards, to promote a continued scarcity of food, medicines and other basic inputs, and to damage its development potential. That is the nature and those are the objectives of the economic coercion and the great pressure applied by the United States government against Cuba in violation of international law and the UN Charter. Cuba has not implemented a single measure or action aimed at damaging the United States or its economic sector or its trade or social fabric. Cuba has not engaged in any action threatening the United States' independence, harming their sovereign rights, interfering in its internal affairs or affecting the well-being of its people. The United States' behavior is absolutely unilateral and unjustified. The Cuban people is resisting and overcoming isolation day after day creatively against this merciless, merciless economic warfare which since 2019 in the midst of the COVID pandemic was opportunistically escalated to an extreme, cruel and inhumane dimension. The effects are brutal. The United States government is pressuring entities for them not to provide the oxygen of medicine which are needed in Cuba to face the pandemic. Our Cuban scientists created vaccines and developed the ventilators which were needed to save the country and which we put at the disposal of other countries of the world as well. With surgical and vicious precision, they calculated both in Washington and Florida how to inflict the greatest possible damage to Cuban families. The United States continues its actions and has tried to prevent the supply of fuel and lubricants to our country, which would be unthinkable in times of peace. In a globalized world, it is not only absurd, but criminal to prohibit 
access to technologies, including medical equipment, which have over 10% of United States components. It is shameful their action against the medical cooperation provided by Cuba to numerous nations. It even goes so far as to openly threaten sovereign governments for requesting this contribution and meeting the needs for public health amongst their populations. The United States is depriving its citizens of the right to travel to Cuba, defying its own constitution. The intensification of the blockade has an impact on migratory flows in our country over the last few years, which means a painful cost for Cuban families and has demographic and economic consequences of an adverse nature for the nation. The government of the United States lies and causes great harm to international efforts to combat terrorism when it accuses Cuba in an utterly baseless way of being a sponsor of this scourge. Under the shield of this arbitrary and fraudulent accusation, they extort hundreds of banking and financial entities throughout the world and force them to choose between continuing their relations with the United States or maintaining their links with Cuba. Our country is truly under siege. It's suffering from a cruel, silent, extraterritorial economic war. This is accompanied by a powerful political machinery for destabilization with vast funds approved by the United States Congress with the aim of capitalizing on the shortfalls caused by the blockade and undermining the constitutional order of the country and its people's serenity. Despite the hostility of its government, of this government, we will continue to build bridges with the people of the United States, as we do with all peoples of the world. We will strengthen still further the links with Cuban immigrants, immigrants in any part of the world. President, promoting and protecting human rights is a shared ideal which requires a genuine spirit of respect and constructive dialogue between states. Regrettably, 75 years since the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, reality is very different from this. This has become a political weapon for powerful nations who seek to force their geopolitical designs upon independent nations, mainly those from the South. No country is immune from challenges, and none has the authority to consider itself an example in terms of human rights and to stigmatize other models, cultures, or sovereign states. We defend dialogue and cooperation as effective ways to promote and protect human rights without any politicization or selectivity, without applying double standards, conditions, or pressure. In this spirit, Cuba has pre presented its candidature to the Human Rights Council for 2024 to 2026 in the elections which will take place on the 10th of October. We are grateful in advance for the trust of those countries which have already provided their valuable support. If we are elected, the voice of Cuba will continue to stand up for a universal vision as seen from the South of the inter legitimate interests of developing countries including constructive commitment and the unavoidable responsibility to the full achievement of all human rights for all. Cuba will continue to bolster its democracy and its socialist model, 
which, although it is buffeted, has shown what a developing country can do, even if it is small in size and with scant natural resources. We will continue our transformative efforts to seek exits from the siege which is imposed upon us by the United States imperialism and ways to achieve the prosperity with social justice that our people deserve. In this endeavor, we will never renounce the right to defend ourselves. President, distinguished heads of delegation and other representatives, I conclude by extending an invitation to all of you to work to overcome differences and to address shared challenges urgently. To do this, the United Nations and this General Assembly, including with all their limitations, are the most powerful instrument that we have. You can always count upon Cuba to defend multilateralism and to, together to promote peace and sustainable development for all. It will always be an honor to fight for justice, sharing the difficulties and challenges with the peoples of the South who are ready to change history. We will prevail. Thank you very much. On behalf of the Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the Republic of Cuba for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort his excellent. Welcome back. And that was uh, the President of the Republic of Cuba, Miguel Canal. And, of course, uh, we're here uh, at the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide Radio Broadcast. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, Go to that website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And we're going to be signing off uh, for uh, the program today. We'll close out with the music of Lil Green, legendary blues vocalist. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
the truth. Please tell me, babe, what you going to do? Now tell me, babe, please tell me, what have I done? I love you, babe, always treated you kind, but your ways and actions make me lose my mind. Now tell me, babe, please tell me, what have I done?
stars fell out of the sky. Love me, baby, if it take you all night long. 